good. Okay, so chapter 8 of the book of Acts. We know that Stephen just got put to death, first martyr. Um, what do you think the church was feeling like after this? What do you think those that were, I mean, I mean, recently we just had a, an, an election, right, at our, in our congregation meeting, and we, uh, we elected some officers, and these people are our friends, our brothers and sisters that we know very well. Randy, as a member, Lisa and Rich, and Elvira and Hubert, and uh, Debbie, right, on the missions committee. And then all of a sudden we find out that because they were testifying about Jesus in the public square, they were martyred or me, or Chris, or anybody, whoever it is, Jonathan's, I mean, anybody here. How do you think, what would be the ripple effect, do you think, in that situation? Discouragement, fear, fear for your life, yeah. sadness, and so many things. So many emotions, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have the introduction of this... Um, of really the person that was overseeing. Because you see what happened, as we know, Jewish people were not allowed by the Romans to, to have court and, and, and judge somebody and have them executed. They weren't allowed to do that. They would have to go to the Romans and either get permission or they would have to get them to do it because they violated some sort of law. But because of the zeal and because of the passion of the Jewish people, especially the Jewish leaders, they could not help themselves at some point because they, they, their whole mentality, not just when, when they say we have to obey God rather than men, that's not a Christian thing. That's a Jewish thing that, that blended into Christianity very well. So these people were not afraid of the Romans when it came to following and obeying God. And the Romans knew that. So that's why they sort of kept their distance and kept things in order. But at the same time, if there was a line crossed that would cause problems, they would be quick with the sword as well. So, but we have this new character, okay? This new character named Saul that is overseeing in, in um, chapter seven, a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning. He, they put their robes next to him. So if anything were to happen, Saul, the Pharisee, would be the one there that would probably have stood up and probably had spoken and validated what was going on. So not only do you have the, the, the killing of Stephen and the ripple that that sent through the church, but this wasn't a one-time, this isn't implying, is this like going to be like a one-time thing now? Or is this going to be like something that we have to worry about? And so... Um, Somebody read eight verses, uh, chapter one, eight, uh, verse one through verse three, if you have it open. Is it from and Saul or is it from on that day? I'm sorry? Like, there's two parts. Is it and Saul approved of their killing him? Yeah, eight verses one. You could just. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. 
But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Mm. So we have this new guy, Saul, coming around. So not only do you have the fear of, of death, but now you have this guy who's actively going around ravaging the church. Does anybody know what that word means, ravaging? Um, yeah, basically. I mean, that's a good, that's a, we would call it like wreaking havoc, like just turning the places, turning it upside down. And so this right here is a good picture of what the enemy wants to do with us. He wants to get us in a spirit of fear. He wants to get us in a spirit of, oh man, if I, now what are we going to do? We must. See, the enemy wants us always to retreat. The enemy doesn't necessarily always want us to be defeated. He's okay if we just retreat. Why? Why is that? Why could that possibly be a true statement? Because as long as we're not proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus as Lord, he doesn't care what we're doing. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Like, in, the enemy likes when we just sort of keep our faith to ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, pray and be devotional in our home, you know, keep your, keep your God stuff private. And you've talked to people like that, right? You say, well, what do you believe? Well, that's between me and God. I, it's a private thing. Enemy goes, great, awesome. And then the, 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 the principalities and powers, we could speculate, when they see that person retreat, they pull back because that person's, he's submitted. He's, he's where, where that, that's where we want that church, just doing their little thing just going out there and staying and playing church and that's fine. They're not, they're not effective for the world. They're not fighting back. Now I'm not saying physical fighting, but they're not on the offensive like Jesus said he wanted us to be. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In other words, that's an offensive statement, meaning the gates of hell will not be able to stop the offensiveness of the church the you know the defense of the of the jets or giants will not be able to stop the offense of the cowboys okay yeah (laughs) that's sort of what what he's saying here but he's ravaging the church entering in house after house dragging off men and women and putting them in prison So Saul was a passionate Jew leader, Pharisee. He just saw this as something that is completely going against the plan. And so what happened then to the church? What did the church do? How did the church react? Verse 4. Yeah, read verse 4, Claudia, if you have it. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, right? You don't really expect that. You're like, those that have been scattered took cover and laid low for a while and, um, you know, made sure that, you know, they weren't found out because if they're found out, then, you know, how are we ever going to progress the church? We have to sort of lay low now. And, and no, that's not the plan that God has. 
God's plan is go forward and I will be with you as you go until the end of the age. That's the command that they receive from Jesus. All authority is given to Jesus. So your, your boss is in charge still. So what do we do? As we're scattered everywhere, they preached the word. They preached the word. Now, yeah, Hubert, yeah. Ordained by God or in love by God. Yeah. Uh, which which uh, maybe I don't always do. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Something difficult happens and you, you know, you, you lay low. Yeah. It's, or it's, and I agree with that. I don't, I think it's not just being ordained. I just think this is the worldview that they had at that time. This is, they really truly believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They really truly believed that Jesus was king and that this was the beginning of the new age that Jesus was talking about and it was going to break in and they knew Jesus said the kingdom of God is is being broken in but there are some that are doing it with violence it's you know and even Paul said that through much trial and tribulation you must enter the kingdom of God so entering in there's this picture of of the, of the um, kingdom of God having to be forced into this world, but not through our violence. Our violence is that violent word of God that we're preaching, because not being violent as we preach it, but that word is powerful. And that's what's going to move us forward, the word of God being preached. And so now we read... <clears throat> that Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. This is verse five, and begins proclaiming Christ to them. So that's important, right? Because why is that, why is that detail that Luke put in there about Philip? Obviously, he has got a big role in chapter eight. But what's significant about, chapter, about verse five? Yes. Yeah. He's showing it, right. Persecution didn't end it. He said, take the gospel, go into Jerusalem, into all of Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. This is how the, God's gospel gets pushed out into the world. Sometimes it gets pushed out and we don't feel the persecution necessarily right away, but as a general, I would say normative principle in scripture, the word of God moves forth, just like Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides not, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. The principle being through breaking suffering comes that new birth, comes that comes that push forward. And so Luke is writing this and showing us how the gospel is going to move forward. It, it started in Jerusalem. Now it went throughout, it, what we saw it going around through Judea. Now we're seeing Samaria. And then we're going to see in the next chapter how it's moving out. Well, even he starts to hint in this chapter of the gospel going out.
Yes. I was going to say that, um, well, for them, this was the kingdom mentality that we talk, sometimes we talk about having the mentality of eternity, but we've been so spoiled by the comfort of life, yeah. the easiness, but for them, this was real. I mean, there's no war, there's no establishing a new kingdom without a war. Mm -hmm. It just no, I mean, yeah. nobody takes new territory without a fight. Yes. And this is what they were doing. So, and I think we've lost that. Yeah. That, that we are in a war, and and to establish God's kingdom, you have you are you will get opposition. Yeah. And uh, and and so they they just for them that was the next natural step, I guess. Mm -hmm. by empowering of the spirit, of course. But yeah. They were not afraid. Yeah, it was a pri It was just when you see it through. Um, Almost in every chapter of the book of Acts and almost in every incident of the book of Acts, you see a persecution or you see some problems. And then Luke always tells us almost at the end of every chapter that the word of God kept on going forward. Mm -hmm. And they preach in the word and the Lord went out and the gospel went here. And so he's telling you there's this is a victorious upside down kingdom. And you're like, waiting for the for the story to be like and that was it and it's you know it's done and over because yeah they're getting violently attacked they're rejoicing then they keep preaching the word and that's the pattern that um we see in scripture from an eschatological perspective i want you guys to my advice would not to think so much when you think of eschatology as how it's going to end um, don't think so much of, well, when Christ's going to return and then what's going to happen after that. And I mean, you could, it's fun to study that stuff. I enjoy it. But really, the end began, eschatology begins with the resurrection. And, it, and, the, and then the kingdom of God moves forward like a mustard seed, like the yeast working its way through the, the, the bread, right? Like the seed, and then it sprouts up. And so this is exactly, this is what's happening is, is the, the kingdom of God is growing through pain and supposed pain, trial, and tribulation. Okay, so, and it doesn't have a steady upward progress either. It's, it's God's timing. But, the, but our weapon is the word of God proclaimed. That's our job and that's our weapon, okay? So in any position that we're in, whether it be, and this is why I always say, you can't separate anything from morality. You can't separate anything from truth. They all, every aspect of life comes from a standard of truth, whether it be politics, religion, education, entertainment, whatever it is. There's always, there's always gotta be, a, a, the buck has to stop somewhere where, where does that true, where are you getting all that from, right? Where are you getting your truth from? And, and where, and is it the word of God, whatever, wherever we're at in our life, the word of God has to be primate, primary, our primary thing, either speaking it out or the decisions that we make, even in our jobs as parents, got to put the word of God. That's building for the kingdom of God. Okay, that's building for the kingdom of God. If you want to go out and protest and do that stuff, and God's leading you to do that, I say great, but have you prayed first? 
right? Have you prayed about it? And is God moving you to go do that? Okay, if you're, if you're even on the other side, if you want to go out on the mission field, you pray, seek the face of God so that way you know what you're going to be doing. When you're preaching that word, it's going to go out and it's going to bear fruit. And so <clears throat> who's the example now that, that uh, in verse five, who do we have? We have a new, uh, not a new character, but we have Luke giving us an example of people going out that were scattered by the persecution to preach the word. And that, and that was Philip. And his name means lover of horses, which I have no idea why that's how that's relevant. But I always love to look at <laughs> what their name actually means and let people know so maybe you could figure that out. But look at, <laughs> but look at this guy, okay? Who could tell me about Philip? Who wants to talk about Philip? Somebody teach us about Philip. It doesn't have to be perfect. Wasn't well, he the one that uh, taught the Ethiopian eunuch for the chariot? Yep. And uh, got picked up by God and brought to a whole different location? Yeah. Where was that? What chapter? This one. <laughs> that's coming up. Oh, okay. Yep, that's right. So he was the one that God used there. And he was one of the deacons. He was one of the people that were selected randomly. What was the prerequisite? Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of wisdom. Two more, at least. He was godly. Good, well, did we say good reputation already or no? no. So then there's, there's another one, two more <laughs> after that. Full of faith. Full of faith. Full of God's grace and power. Yes, full of God's grace and power. See that? This man was a Christian. Mm-hmm. He was somebody that had faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Full of wisdom. And he was selected to wait tables and clean up and serve people. But what was God's real plan for him to be prepared to do? He was being prepared by God to go and take the gospel of the kingdom, the the word of God into, you good? Okay, I didn't know if you need me for something. Take the word, we're teaching the Bible here, you know that, right? Okay, just wanna make sure you know. The word of God His goal was to take the word of God and do some amazing things with it in Samaria. Four, yes. Yeah, I believe he had four that were prophetesses or however you say that. Yeah. But yeah, who who had seven? Was it Philip the Evangelist that had seven? Somebody had seven, but I think he had four. Um, Do I have a note on that? I don't. That's not the same person? I don't know. Maybe we could check on that. It's... um, Acts 20-something. We could probably pop it in. No, I think it's good to let's, let somebody um, do that while we're, while we're uh, going, okay? Just type in, yeah, see where, where it is. It, I thought it was four daughters that 
prophesied, and maybe he had three other ones that, I don't know, did something else. How many was it? Okay, four unmarried, but maybe, maybe he had more after that. Philip the Evangelist. So we see Philip started out as a deacon. What do we get from this? We get that where God has us right now, what? He, what is God trying to do in your life at this very moment with what you're involved in in your life? Whether you're a teenager, whether you're a, um, a, a husband, a wife, or you're going, getting ready to go to school, whatever the case may be, God cares about you now, here. What's he trying to do based off this scripture with Philip? Based off of this um, character of Philip and what he's doing now versus what he was doing last chapter. He's preparing him. He's preparing him. How does God prepare people? He prepares them by increasing and working on their faith. He prepares them by filling them with the Holy Spirit, giving them wisdom, giving them the ability to understand the word of God and the gospel. Did you have something to add, Ms. Elvira? Oh, okay. Giving you opportunities to put into practice what you say you believe. Yeah, giving the opportunities to put into practice what you say you believe. Yeah. So he he showed himself um, faithful before being chosen as a deacon. Mm -hmm. So whatever he was doing, however he lived, he was showing his faith. Yeah. Right in that way, and I imagine in 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 probably smaller ways, you know, compared to the to Peter and and what Peter and John were doing, all that. But he was just faithful in that, and that's what showed it. And then in the persecution, he's one of the ones that goes out and continues. Yeah. Because now it shifts from the, the, the primary eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection to like, sort of like that next. He didn't, he, from what we know, he wasn't the one who saw him right. resurrected necessarily, but he's continuing that. And then but he, I think he was because he was an apostle. Well, whatever. But yeah. Was, I, not names, I guess. But I'm saying like he Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he continued, the, he picked up the mantle. Right. right. So he left, and he continued what the commission was to, continue, to go out. Mm-hmm. And he had a singular obedience about mm. that. Despite this persecution, he was going to continue to obey that command of the Lord. And then we see him, you know, with family. Yeah. <laughs> and then his generation. What I'm saying is that it's that same, like from one generation to the next, you have yeah. faithfulness of a discipling that he did in his own home and then outside of it with the, you know, with the daughters and stuff. And he continues to be faithful throughout. Yeah. And the cool thing, too, because um, uh, Hubert, I think, had mentioned it, is after he went to and met the Ethiopian eunuch, God took him up, you know, pulled him out supernaturally, brought him to uh, Azotus, and he, this is verse 40 of 8, and he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea, which is where we find out he is now living with daughters 
as an evangelist in a town. So God settled him down too at the same point. So he was used and he's continuing to be used in a different way as an evangelist in Caesarea with four daughters whom he's obviously raising up if they're prophesying and they're doing these sorts of things, which is also shows how God started and incrementally used him. So now he's not only going out preaching the word, now he's replicating and making disciples. But read John, this is another cool thing about, because back on what you said, Claudia, about the incremental, put this in my mind. You don't have to go there. I'll just, I'll just read it. John 1.43, and the next day, Jesus, he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this is the same Philip. Yeah, this is one of, this is his, his, the apostle Philip. And so you have. Why would he be teaching the word if he was an apostle? What's that? Why wouldn't he be teaching if he was one of the apostles? Why wouldn't he be teaching already? What do you mean? Peter, because Peter was preaching, John was preaching. And you get this idea that the, the 11 apostles. Or they, they got the, the were, yeah. the, were the elders preaching. Why wouldn't he be preaching? Philip was preaching, yeah. But, but, he but then he was preaching. chosen instead of continuing to preach. He was chosen. To be oh, oh, I know what you're saying. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, why would they? They were saying, we can't wait to yeah. because we're preaching. Yeah. I'm assuming he was preaching. Right, right. They're they going to spend the time in the word and prayer. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. So are you, are you thinking maybe it's a different Philip? I never thought about it. Actually. So he is in the list of the apostles? Philip? Yeah. He is. Yeah, I, I'll look into that more, but I believe it's the, I believe it's the same one. So, yeah, because it says the 12 summoned. Yeah, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said it's not desirable for us. Therefore, select from among you seven men of good reputation, but we will desert or, or devote ourselves to prayer, found approval with the whole. They chose Stephen, Philip. Yeah, I know it's kind of odd. <clears throat> but for today, we'll, <clears throat> we'll assume that. What's that? From the time that Jesus met these young guys by the tree, how many years went by till, till the early? Probably four between three and four. This is probably the, within the first year uh-huh. of after Jesus uh, yeah, resurrected and ascended. Uh-huh. I would assume, that's what we sort of guessed last week, uh-huh. that the Stephen murder was probably, uh, martyr was probably within that year. So he could have been 15 at the tree and 20 at I think so, yeah. I think he was probably a little older, but you never know. But, um, but anyway, let's assume that is Philip and in the incremental faith that he had to, to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah uh, from the very beginning. Um, sort of neat. So yeah, he was an evangelist. So um, he goes around, <clears throat> and it's funny you say this because <clears throat> when, I re- when you read chapter eight, Philip now goes into Samaria and does the work of an apostle. Right, because you see, Pete Paul 
in his defense of his apostleship, says that he has done all of the signs and wonders that an apostle of the Lord Jesus is supposed to be doing. All right, so that was the mark of the apostle during the, this, this, this first period. Well, the mark of the apostle was signs and wonders, miracles, healings, so forth and so on. And you see that with Philip when he goes to Samaria. He was performing signs. They saw the signs. He was taking out unclean spirits. They were shouting with a loud voice. Many who had been paralyzed, the lame were healed. And then there's this man called Simon who formerly practiced magic. And he was like the the guy in Samaria who was the, you know, the great power of God, they call him. But they were giving him attention because a long time, this guy Simon. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike, even Simon himself believed, and he continued on with Philip. Very, very interesting. So what happened next that was very significant as it relates to the gifts of the apostleship, um, this guy Simon, and Peter and John? Think about it. If, I'm, I'm assuming you guys read chapter 8. So homework every week is to read the chapter. Why did John and Peter come? Because they had heard that the Samaritans had received the word and they were believing. Yeah. And so they came. But what? They had the Holy Spirit, right, Chris? They, they didn't. But what they didn't have the... Well, they didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? So we believe, when we believe, we get the Holy Spirit, right? This is why when we spent a lot of time in chapters two, three, and four on this baptism of the Holy Spirit, when the power of God comes upon you for the work of the ministry and the work of service, these people were baptized in the name of Jesus, but they never had the power of the Holy Spirit come down upon them which I thought was odd because if Philip, in fact, was an apostle and he was doing the signs of an apostle, healing, supernatural, and all that other stuff, my question to you is, is why didn't he have the ability to be able to baptize these people in the Holy Spirit based upon our previous teaching? But does it really say that he didn't? It just says that Peter and John were the ones that were doing this praying doesn't say that Philip was not around there. I mean... You don't think it's inferred in the text where the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent John and Peter who came down and prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. So we have to assume that Stephen or Philip Philip bummed out now, like, man, what's what's wrong with me? You know, I can heal the lame and I can make this person see, but I just, uh, uh, and then he tried laying hands on him and he tried doing abracadabra and he tried doing all this stuff and it didn't work. What does that tell us about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? 
I, I mean, I think that is two different things. And that the, but as far as the apostles, they had different roles, just like uh, Paul, you know, Philip was an evangelist. He wasn't necessarily, um, you know, he, he, he was spreading the word and the truth. He was empowered to do signs. Um, but maybe he wasn't, it wasn't his role to stick around and, and bring them to that next level. Maybe that's why another... Yes. Uh, and, um, so it's not about one man, it's about God and God and the people. Bingo. And also I think because of the, there were Gentiles, I think. In, in the, in the Sumerians? Gentiles. No. They weren't considered Gentiles. They were, no, they're half. It was worse. They were <clears throat> but they were north, they're the northern tribe of Israel. Yeah. So they're considered, that's why Jesus went to them. Because they were considered by God to be the people of God. Sometimes when the Lord is bringing people from other than the pure breed mm-hmm. of Israel, he always like, does more. To does show. more to show them. Yeah, we see that. Could it have been too that it was like, uh, uh, to what Amir was just saying, that um, having that observable presence of the Holy Spirit would have made the conversion of the Samaritans legit. Because when, like for instance, when Peter went to Cornelius' house, they believed, and then there was an observable presence of them being baptized by the Holy Spirit, legitimizing their conversion, maybe before the eyes of the apostles. And then the Samaritan, Philip is with the Samaritans, he's spreading the word, it says they believe, so they would have received as believers the Holy Spirit, but maybe the, the Lord is having Peter and John come in so that there's clearly what they're pointing to is an observable um, anointing of the Spirit because it's, Simon sees something. He, he sees right. something. He's like, whoa, I want that. But here, you so got <clears throat> the Samaritans and, and the spreading of the gospel because it seems like it happens with the, each, yeah. each new type of believer. Like they need that. The they want to be empowered yeah, to take it out. Yeah. And so maybe that's the, the yeah. difference where there's an observable anointing so that it legitimizes those conversions. It could be that. I don't doubt that at all. I don't think that that, I think that's a, a very uh, practical inference here. I think we could, we could definitely see that because the apostles, in, in a nutshell, what Claudia was saying is, I think, was that, look, these Samaritans just heard the word of God. They're Christians, but God is in a, in a period of multiplying the church and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit is always for the purpose of bringing glory to Jesus Christ in the purpose of ministry or service or empowerment for whatever it is that you need. But my but what I was trying what I'm trying to do, why I'm sort of dangling us here off the cliff, is because this is so important as a recap of what we talked about and what we are what we're talking about here. Now Simon saw was hanging around Philip, doing miracles, healing people. He didn't want that. What did he want? After Peter and John came and started laying hands on people, and they became baptized with the power of the Spirit, that's when he says to them, let me give you money. I want to be able to do that too. To give the spirit to yeah. 
And what does Peter say to him about the spirit? I want you to read this. <clears throat> read 20, read 20s. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. The gift of God. You see, here's what I want you guys to get this. The Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as well. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit when you believe, gift of God, our helper, our comforter, points us to Christ, talk to, lets, leads us to go out and proclaim, right? But the gift, the, but the baptism of the Spirit is a gift of God that God gives when God wants to give it. No human being, not even the apostles, can generate it by doing something. You can't generate it by doing something. You can't crank up the faith and say, I'm going to just start, you know, and bring that Holy Spirit. We can't do that. But God, for some reason, I guarantee you, Philip, as he went through, was, bapt, was, was laying hands on people and they were being filled with the Holy Spirit. I, we don't necessarily see that, but it could be quite possible that God didn't give it to Philip here and the power came, comes upon him with the eunuch. The, the Spirit pulls him and snatches him away and brings him to another place. It's really, really incredible, but I want you guys to understand that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that empowerment, we should desire it. We should pray for it. We should desire God to, to give us that, but it's the gift of God. It's not anything that we can generate. Does that make sense? Claudia, you look like you're about to come up no, here and no, body slam me. I was thinking about something someone said uh, okay. to me definitely has been baptized in the spirit and I thought to myself oh really because she's here because she's done stuff that is not according to the word of God mm -hmm. so the two don't go together so it's a very confusing there's thing. a very missed it's so polluted on the side of the word of faith movement. You got the extreme name it and claim it word of faith and then you have the charismatic movement that's sort of they believe in the scripture, but they sort of, it's a lot of floatiness in there. And, you know, you don't have enough faith and you've been baptized with the spirit, which means in their languages, you've authentically, you've authenticated your salvation by speaking in tongues. Right. But when we look at the scriptures, that's not what the scripture teaches, that you're saved when you can speak in tongues. Right. Paul even says tongues are, are they're on last on the list. Therefore, the, your edification and, and your worship unto the Lord. However, it's never the same as you look. I mean, God does things sometimes too, but it's never a consistent pattern with the baptism of the Spirit. These aren't the gifts of the Spirit. These aren't the gifts. So you have the inward dwelling of the Spirit, okay? One Spirit, different workings, like Paul says. To one, a certain measure of faith. To another, gifts of, me of healing. To another, miracles. To another, tongues. To another, this. To another, that. But let me show you what's the most important thing. Having God inside of you, love. That's the most important thing to Paul. 
So again, there's separation. We'll get to the gifts eventually because we'll start to see them here and we'll talk about them. But I just want you to see. And so now we have this man who had a, who had a terrible heart, um, Simon. He had a bad heart. And we could go into this. Verse 23, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. And Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves that nothing what you said may come about. about. Was Simon saved? No. Who else wants to answer that? If Peter's saying that he's got the bond of iniquity, isn't iniquity another word for sin? And we are not in bondage if we are saved and repented. Well, that's interesting. Um, there are... When, when you're saved, there are possibly things in the future that still have to be dealt with. This is a guy that just, if he did get saved, I'm not saying, and by the way, I'm not going to say either way because I don't know. None of us know, right? But we can infer from scripture, I sort of agree a little bit with Hubert, that we all are, when we first, hey buddy, when we first get converted I know for myself, there was a tremendous amount of things that I was still uh, in, in, in my heart that needed to come out. But it does say that even Simon himself believed and was baptized and continued on with Philip. So it's either a conversion or it's a false conversion. But the good thing is that Simon seems like he repented. Pray the Lord that this doesn't happen to me. Therefore, repent of the wickedness, you know, all this other stuff. So it's a, cool, it's a cool little thing to look at. But we can see the temptation to want to hold on and bring our old habits and our old sins into the kingdom of God in a safe place. Look, uh, come on, Philip you know, and Peter and John. I used to be called the great power of God in Samaria. I can help you out. I can help this whole thing happen if you give me this laying of the hands power. I can really blow this up because people already are looking at me with this stuff. And you know what You know what God wanted him to do? Take all of those evil sorceries and all those things he was doing and kill the old man. He was trying to keep the old man. Even though it was a, it was a good thing maybe that he would have been doing that. That's why he's in the gall of bitterness. That's why he's in the bondage of iniquity because he's carrying and holding on to it. Now, he could have let go of that and still struggle with that old man. That's what you're saying, Hubert. It takes time, but it's walking with the Lord, as in Romans, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So it's a constant thing going on every day. Tomorrow, wake up and say, my flesh is dead, and I am perfectly fine right now. I don't need to put, keep putting off these deeds. It's already done. Yeah, it's done in the, in, the, in the annals of heaven. It's done, but you still have a battle. Do that tomorrow, and by an hour after that, you're going to be in big trouble. Five <laughs> yeah, five minutes, right. So always keep fighting. <clears throat> always keep fighting. Now we have Philip. <clears throat> going and speaking to the Ethiopian, which um, we can talk about. We could start talking about. Maybe we'll get through it. 
what is what is uh um I like this. So when they had spoken and testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is verse 25, they went back to Jerusalem. So they just literally came from Jerusalem, boop, went out, helped out Philip, laid the hands on. Holy Spirit is now in Samaria uh, in terms of the power there. Those people are going to keep preaching and keep going out. And then they go back and they started preaching through some villages. But an angel, angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and told him to go <clears throat> to the to the desert road <clears throat> that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is where he finds the Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he heard, Philip heard him uh, reading the prophet of Isaiah, and he obviously didn't understand what he was reading. He said, I need someone to explain it to me. Philip gladly realized that, wow, this is why God told me to go to this road to meet this Ethiopian. So God puts it on the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch to go and travel from Ethiopia in a, in a chariot to Jerusalem. Was he, allowed in this, was he allowed in the temple? No. He wasn't even allowed in the court of the Gentiles. So when he worshiped to Jerusalem, he had to stand outside the temple with the beggars and everybody else. And that's because there was no eunuch allowed in the temple. <clears throat> it, it would defile the temple. But what else is God showing us here by giving us this story of this eunuch? What else is he showing us? Big picture now. We talked a little bit about it before. What's unique about the eunuch <laughs> as it relates to this story? Yes, he was seeking. He was, in a sense, he was seek something about the Jew, Jewish religion, and, and you know, let this guy know that this was the one true God. <clears throat> what about from Luke's perspective? Why is Luke telling us about this now? Mm. So that this can take place. That's always what yeah. shocks me about Everything had to be perfectly orchestrated by God for this to happen. I also think it shows how the gospel reached certain parts of the world. So we saw it, you know, this is the extent to the exactly. earth. Exactly. We start to see the prophecy of Jesus to come true even more. Mm-hmm. We saw Samaria. Now we're starting to see a foreshadow of the of the, of the Gentiles getting the word of God because that's what Ethiopian, they were Gentiles. So we have this Ethiopian eunuch, this really cool, amazing writing of Luke from a story plot perspective. This is perfect. You see a, a guy that loves God, the God of, the, of Jerusalem, and you see him coming yet not being allowed in, but he's also a Gentile. So it's this, he's making this smooth transition into the gospel going out. And there's lots of um, speculation that this eunuch was one of the first bishops in Ethiopia, that he went back and shared the gospel and started churches and look into it. It's a really neat study. <clears throat> now, with that said, um, we'll talk a little bit about uh, 
we'll, 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 we'll start chapter 9 uh, by reviewing the uh, chapter 8 next week. <clears throat> but I want to give you two, two points of application to take with you guys to encourage, hopefully encourages us here. Um, first of all, look at the persecution to where it's gone now in just one short chapter. Persecution scattered the church so Samaria and the, and the Gentiles could start to hear the gospel. And on paper, that would have looked a little bit weird to say, okay, now we are getting persecuted. We have people chasing us down out of our houses, pulling us out of our beds, throwing us into prison, ravaging us. What do we do? Let's be obedient Christians. An obedient Christian is somebody that goes to the feet of the Lord and says, Lord, your will be done, not my will be done. An obedient Christian doesn't start out with a checklist of do's and don'ts. An obedient Christian starts out with a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, realizing who and what he has saved us from. And that's what I believe Paul, I'm sorry, um, Luke is showing us here to be obedient to that call, whatever it is. Now, here's the second point. God may send you to unusual places and to unusual people. God may send you that obedient call may be so that way you have to be obedient to go to these unusual people, the eunuchs of Ethiopia. But Lord, why not just send me right up to Galatia or why not send me down to Egypt? Well, you don't have to do that. All you got to do is go to this road and I'm going to bring people to you. And that person is going to go and blow it up. So you don't even know who it is you're talking to when you're being obedient. When God puts it on your heart, say, hey, share the gospel with that guy or that girl. Or, hey, you know, why don't you talk to that person and and tell them about the Lord? Go up to that person and see if they need prayer. Pull over on the side of the road, not you ladies, you men, and and help out that person that has a flat tire maybe because maybe God's saying to you they need to hear the gospel and that they need help. Unusual people, unusual places. There's no place on anywhere on this planet that God doesn't rule over. Maybe he's sending you somewhere else. Maybe he's sending you to send other people somewhere else. Maybe he's calling you to do something really unique and odd. Or maybe he's calling you to do something very simple. Are you able to live with that? Are you able to live with what? To stay in Jerusalem amidst the persecution? Are you, are you ready to go down the street into Samaria to Asbury Park? Or is he sending you overseas? Or is he sending you to Pastor Pat to see what needs to be done around the church? (laughs) Or Elder Chris to see what needs to be done around the church? Or, or to, we got a lot of, we got a lot of ministry in this room into the missions area. What's that? We really need the angel of the Lord to come. Yeah. <laughs> so 
let, let's be, a, this is, what it, this is, the, this is the, the spirit that I want. My prayer is, is that the spirit of these Sunday schools give us the, the desire to want to be this, the mentality of the church in the beginning, uh, the, 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 the mentality of the Acts church, taking this serious of what God has for you. And this is a very, very serious, serious thing that we're involved in, this thing called life. Okay, it's a matter of life and death. And so we have the good news. And let's get out there and let's proclaim it. But let's be wise. Let's seek the Lord. Let's know that the Lord isn't like this, you know, he's not a, a tyrant. He's not going to whip. He wants to work with you. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His burden is easy. His, his yoke is light. So, so come to him and see how you can be Philip. And get out. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, my family was from the traditional church in Mexico. And being Mexican means you are Roman Catholic. And um, when, we be, when we came to the Lord and uh, we, we got baptized very shortly, the patriarch of the family, my grandma's uh, brother, came insulting us left and right and, forced, and telling us, you leave this stupid religion mm. or you lose your family. Mm. And it was hard because we were very close, very, very close. This is the family we spent all summers, every Christmas. Um, my mom grew up with all of them, my uncles and, and aunts, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, by God's grace, my mom and my grandma decided we will follow Christ. We will continue to go up to the church. Mm. And we grew, and the Lord, by His grace, gave us both. That's our family begrudgingly accepted us. Wow. So it was not going to blow off anyway. Uh, and as the years have gone by, and as the time has passed, and they've seen our lives and the power of Christ in our marriages and how mm. he took us from where we were to, to different lives. My cousins that I grew up with, uh, we were a family of seven. My mom, my uncle, my, three, my two cousins, and, uh, and my grandma. And he took us all from a park. So my preached to us in a park. Mm. It was a gospel, helped us grow. Anyway, many years later now, Every house I went this trip, I was able to share Christ. Wow. I was able to pray for them. I was asked, it's amazing. why do you believe about hell and, and heaven? <laughs> like by a cousin who, it's super, like, don't talk to me about anything about the, other than Catholicism and, and the saints. Yeah. And it is, um, it, it's that when God, I mean, these are not unusual people, these are my people. Well, yeah. But yet, God, God is so amazing to, that you have to wait. Sometimes you have to wait many years. Yes. But never stop praying for them. And it is so incredible to know that you can share Christ. Um, and sometimes you, you, you can't say words. But, yeah. but people are seeing it. <clears throat> and now they're curious, right? Yeah. They want to know. Amen. And especially when the situation that we are living and they see the joy of my mom. Anyway, I just wanted to say because... Sometimes you're praying for all these opportunities and you never know. And yet God is always, always at work. Mm. Always at work with the gospel and the opportunity to share. And, and it's the funniest part is that now I was asked at every table. I was asked to share. Mm. I was asked to pray. I was asked. Because now they know it's real. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many other reasons. Yeah. But I know that is a, yeah. was a big thing with my family and my friends. Like they saw you endure through it yeah. and they say, it's gotta be real. Something is real there. So yeah. tell me about it. Yeah. 
But that's awesome, Elvira. Thank you for sharing that.